I'm Mark Haywood, and this is Behind the Spine, a podcast which finds learning opportunities for writers in the most unlikely of places. We want to have this idea of ourselves as being perfect people. A lot of us don't want to be kind of self-critical. And the thing is, that's very, very necessary if we're looking to be to be kinder to others and to reduce the harm that we have on others. We live in a world where it's hard to be kind or at least it can often feel that way. You see, we're so busy, so wrapped up in our own lives that being kind sort of falls by the wayside. You may say that that's silly, that it takes no effort at all to be kind, but it does, it really does. To be kind to another person is to understand how to be kind to them. Thankfully, we're living at a time when the world is becoming much more accepting of all people. But this way of life is still fairly new to us. We're now having to learn how to be accepting and what is required of us to make sure we make good on the promise of acceptance. Benji Kusi is the author of Hope This Helps, How to Be Kinder to Yourself and Others, a self-help guide brimming with practical tips and advice. And I am delighted to say that he's been kind enough to be my guest today. Chapter 1. We were never meant to live like this. Oh, damn. Sorry. I've just got to respond to this quickly. Okay. Where was I? We're so easily distracted these days. It's no wonder we sometimes need a reminder to be kind. The problem is, we think it should come instinctively, so we often take kindness for granted. And it isn't always first in our minds. Benji explains why we need to be told to be kind sometimes and why that's okay. I feel like if you look at social media and you look out at the news and, you know, it it can paint a very bleak picture sometimes about the state of humanity. You can look at politics over the last, you know, few decades. Like, yeah, there's a lot of stuff out there that can make you think that we're actually all horrible, mean people. But we're not. We're not. I I believe deep down most of us want to be good people and want to do the quote-unquote right thing Um, but I think it is that second thing you said about needing a reminder because we are all we have so many things to deal with now the world we are so much more connected just as a global community now and so what that means is that like there's so much more that we have to deal with as people you know we were never meant to be so reachable for example like I get anxiety sometimes when I get notifications on my phone because I text somebody, they text me back. Now I feel like I have to reply straight away. And then they're one of like tens of hundreds of people who can get in touch with me at any time. And it's like a lot to think about. That's just one thing. Most of us are dealing with like the cost of living crisis. How are we going to afford to pay our rent, our bills, you know, how we're going to take care of our families. There's so many different things to think about. So we sometimes don't have the time to sit and think about, okay, how can I be a better person? Like, How can I be someone who is the best person to be around? How can I better benefit my community? Like, how can I actually benefit myself? Like, how can I pour into myself and kind of, you know, practice self-care? And how can I build myself up in a way? And lots of us are in survival mode. We're just trying to get by. And so this book isn't meant to be, it's not meant to be something that people read and they feel judged. Because ultimately, and I say it throughout the book, like, no one has all of the answers. A lot of the stuff that I talk about in the book 
It's reminders that I give myself when I fall short. And it's about hopefully providing readers with an opportunity to just sit and think about things that maybe they don't have another time to think about and to consider and to actually gain some practical tips and advice on how they kind of bake it into their day to day. Right. There's loads of practical, actionable tips about how to listen compassionately and, and, you know, and how to apologize. And these are things which hopefully, you know, people can take away so they can kind of bake the idea of like practicing kindness into their everyday, at least they hope. And that does come screaming through. Interesting what you said about anxiety. I work with a theatre director who has the most brilliant email auto signature, which just says, I'm sending this email at a time that is convenient for me. Please do not feel that you need to reply until the time is convenient for you or something along those lines, because she works strange hours. And, and you're right. You know, we were never meant, I love what you say. We were never meant to be this reachable. And and now this always on world that we live in, it's very hard for us to switch off, isn't it? It's so, so hard. And the potential for risk is just so much greater in the sense that you think about maybe like 30, 40 years ago. I mean, I wasn't around, but I can I can imagine, right, that if someone wanted to get in contact with you, they had to phone your house phone. And then if not, it was like letters. Uh, so you're really only interacting with a certain amount of people per day. Maybe the people at your office, the people you encountered on your way to your office, people you lived with at your home. Maybe if you saw a friend that day, you'd interact with them. But nowadays you're interacting with, if you're online, if you're on social media, you can get in contact with thousands of people at the drop of a hat. You have everyone in your life who has your phone number can text you at any time and have a conversation, right? If you're on emails, anyone can email you. And so the potential for risk, i.e. the potential for you to make a decision, which isn't really something that has an impact which you didn't intend, it's just so much greater. And so we, but that could potentially put people into this mode. And I feel like you see that a lot where people go, oh, well, you just can't say anything nowadays. Just everything is, PC culture's gone wild and, you know, everyone's getting so offended at every little thing. And I really feel like deep down, those people are just scared because there's so much more potential for risk now having so many interactions when you could say or do the wrong thing that could harm somebody else. And I think for some people, their reaction to that is just throw all this was at a pound and be like, whoa, I'm checking out. And I, and whilst I feel like that is, you know, it's, it's not helpful to put your head in the sand, but I can empathize with why people do that because yeah, it, it's, we were never meant to live like this. Let's talk about your lived experience because you very generously share a huge amount of your lived experience with um, your readers in this book. Mm-hmm. Not all of it comfortable. I'm certainly, you know, for you at the very least, and also certainly made it uncomfortable reading for me at times because of, of the way it made me feel mm-hmm. and also the may the way it made me think about the person that I am or have been versus the person I would like to be or perhaps pretend to be at times. But there is one particular chapter which I mentioned to you in my notes where you talk about something called the look and I was absolutely convinced that I knew where this was going and I was reading this chapter it appears very early in the chapter and you talk about the look and I was like oh yeah this is um so you are obviously a black male and this is a black male experience of being looked at by somebody probably white in some form of racist way and I was like yeah I know where this is going Benji come on like you, you know 
what are you writing about this for? Right. We all we all know this. I'm not a racist. This is ridiculous. I don't need to be told this. And the look isn't that the look as you go on to describe it is the look between two people of color. And it's almost as if it's a supportive. You're OK. You've got this. We're here for each other. You know, we're this is OK. And I just thought, you see, this is why books like yours need to exist, because we need to be reminded of other people's lived experience and other people's reality. And I found myself having to I read a lot and I found myself having to slow down and really take in what you were saying, because your book can be devoured in a single sitting. And I would advise people not to do that. I would advise people to take their time with this because the lessons and the advice and the help that you're offering on the surface, it sounds so simple, yet it's actually extremely profound. So just little touches like the look, a look between two people of color in a supportive manner. I just wasn't expecting that. I thought I knew where you were going. And, and, and that just shows you how important this stuff is, doesn't it? Yeah. And um, I think it's, it's what you've really highlighted there is that it's really important to not jump to conclusions, right? And to not make assumptions based on your lived experience. And that is something that we can all practice and we can all do better if we want to understand each other more and to be more sensitive. Because what you did there was you you made an assumption based on kind of what you know, right? And that's totally valid in the sense that you don't know what it's like to live in my body, right? You don't know what it's like to be me. And so you're making a reaction based on the information that you have to have. But that's not the relevant information to understand my experience, right? And so to fully kind of understand where I'm coming from, you had to put what you knew aside and just take in what I was saying, right? And I think like, and I love you said you slow, you slow down. Like that's also really important if you're looking to practice new habits for being kinder and being more inclusive to people who have different experiences than us. And so like, I think that's really, really great. If more of us just did what you did and just went, okay, this is something that is new to me. This is something that I necessarily can't relate to for real valid reasons, practical reasons, because I'm not that person. So I then need to put what I know aside and actually just taking what they're saying and learn something new because it could be helpful as opposed to what people sometimes do is go, well, this is what I know and this is what I've always known and it's always done me right. And so I'm going to use it to, I'm going to apply it to the situation to try and make it make sense for me when it just won't, you know, that look, that's a look you're never going to receive. Right. You're never going to know, you're never going to know what that feels like. There's no reason why you should receive that look because you don't need that look. So that's a look, which I, whenever I, it happens a lot in London where I live, but I really notice it more when I'm not in the UK. I went to Beno Medina in Spain um, to write some of this book in the summer not very diverse at all, very much like a, a holiday town for Brits. Um, <laughs> and ironically, I was a Brit on holiday. I was a Brit abroad, but a ton of white people. And I notice it in those spaces where you pass like a black person or person of color and you haven't seen a person of color all day. And there's just a look you give it to them. You're like, oh, hey, hi, you good? You're right. And it's very much a, like, I see you, you see me. We are both having a similar experience. And yeah, like I see you. It's like it's, it's a validating look, and it's something which, as people of color, 
we kind of have to do right like we have to kind of build supportive networks and build supportive connections because our society you know western society doesn't cater to our experience and, and who we are and our needs um, and so these are things that we have to facilitate as a people in order to survive and that's something which you would not know about but I'm so glad that you you know were able to take in what I was saying and potentially gain something which will, might help you in the future. There was something. There were many, many examples, Benji, of of mm. where I learnt a lot yeah. about somebody else's lived experience. And mm. on that, I wanted to talk about. There is one particular chapter where you talk about. It's not you saying ridiculous things white people say, right? But that's kind of you. You could you could mm. have a hundred of these like picked yeah. out through the book. But one of them is when people say, "I don't see color." You mm. know, I'm almost color neutral, right? People are people. I love people. I don't see color. Um, you brilliantly turn that around and quite rightly so, because for me to say that to you, if I said that to you now, you know, your reply would be, well, Mark, that's very interesting. And, 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 you know, I'm glad that you think all people are equal because all people are equal, but for you to not acknowledge my color is for you to not acknowledge my lived and living experience as a black person in this world. You are obviously a black male. So for me to say I don't see color is almost I'm I'm therefore not seeing you right. That's what you're mm-hmm. saying in in, in yeah. this regard. Oh, a hundred percent, definitely, and um, because it very much is it's who I am, right? So race is a social construct in the sense that there's no such thing as being literally black, and there's no such thing as being literally white. These are things that we have constructed in order to therefore provide certain people with advantages and certain people with disadvantages. And, and that's something that existed for centuries. But just because there's a construct doesn't mean that it doesn't have a real impact on my life, right? And on your life. We do still exist and move through the world as, you know, for me as a Black person, as you as a white person. And so therefore, it is disingenuous to then act like in the pursuit of equality, in the pursuit of inclusion, we therefore need to eradicate these labels and go, oh, we're all just human beings. Yes, we are all just human beings, but we are all having different experiences because of these constructs. We have created, but they have a real tangible impact on people's lives. And this reminds me of, I was thinking about this the other day, not in relation to the book, but Idris Elba came out um, recently um, in an interview and said that, they don't like the idea of being labelled a, a black actor. They're just an, an actor. He just happens to be black. And essentially what he was trying to say and was saying that he, he doesn't like the fact that he's like put in a box because actually he thinks he's just great at his craft. Um, and that's not because he's black, it's just because he's a great actor and that's how he sees himself. And there were lots of people who came out in response to that on either side. But what really stuck out to me is a lot of people took that as him being like, yeah, we need to try, we need to stop talking about race. We need to transcend race and we're all just one and we are the world and X, Y, Z. And that actually isn't what he was really trying to say. What he was really actually trying to say is that he doesn't like being objectified. He doesn't like being stereotyped based on his race. But in order for you to have an acknowledgement that someone like him would face stereotypes and would face objectification, you have to acknowledge his race right but you can acknowledge it without using it to affect how you treat him like there are ways that you can 
use use someone's race and acknowledge their experience in a way that's harmful because you're objectifying them or stereotyping them what we really should be doing is acknowledging people's race so we can create equitable experiences for everybody regardless of race right and have productive conversations about how we can basically level the playing field Um, but I think people overlook that nuance the nuance in that conversation deliberately I don't know why but that people overlook that I guess maybe because they don't want to have uncomfortable conversations the whole idea of all of us being the same is just it's nice it's pleasant people don't like to face the harsh realities of the world and I think that's probably why the whole I don't see color thing um, is persistent chapter two ignorance gets a bad rep Writers are often the first to jump to stereotypes when creating characters. I've done it plenty of times. I sometimes find it extremely difficult to understand whether I'm writing something that's accurate and authentic, or I'm just inventing a broad brush stereotype. But reading Benji's book has made me far more comfortable in my ignorance. It's okay to put your hand up and say, hey, I need some help. We spoke a lot about becoming an expert in your own subject matter in series one of the podcast, and this is essentially what it boils down to. Take out the guesswork. Don't be afraid to ask the hard questions. We need to get past, we'll try our best to get past a fear of being ignorant or being perceived to be ignorant, I should probably say. Ignorance gets a bad rap. And that's something I'm working really hard to try and and tackle because we are all ignorant in some way. To be ignorant just means you don't know something. There's no one in this world who is not ignorant. Everyone is unaware about something. What that means is that like, we should therefore just be open to getting stuff wrong, to having to ask questions, to having to learn more about one one another and the world. I hate the pursuit of perfection, right? I hate this idea that we should be trying to just be flawless and never get anything wrong. Because the thing is, is that when you, one, that's like unrealistic, but also two, you get people who think they've achieved that level of perfection or they know everything there is to know. And then that's really harmful because they're not checking in. For example, pronouns, someone may think, okay, well, I know that if I look at somebody and they look like a man, then their pronouns are him. And if someone someone looks like a woman, then their pronouns are she, her. And if they're not those, then they'll just let me know. And I'm just going to coast through life and just think about it that way. Load off. Not thinking about the fact that, you know, there were other pronouns like they, them, uh, you know, and um, neo pronouns that I talk about in the book that you may not be aware of, that person is not aware of. We need to learn about those, right? Um, you also need to consider the fact that there are many reasons why someone may not feel comfortable to just be like, hey, by the way, these are my pronouns, right? Uh, or this is how I should be referred to. And you may need to actually just ask the question, right? I talk about names in the book. And why it's important to say people's names correctly and not just shorten people's names. That's another thing, which if you're somebody who is like, oh, yeah, well, I call people who are called David, Dave all the time. Or I call people who are called Sharon, Shan all the time. I don't know. I'm making up examples now. Right. And no one's ever said anything to me about why that, that, you know, about that being wrong. So then therefore I can just go through life and just always do that. And it's like, well, 
No. <laughs> so, but for some people, names are very, very important, right? They represent, you know, their background, their, their culture, and their history. And also as well, for certain members of our, of our community who are from marginalized ethnic backgrounds, they face name-based biases. And when you just go short on people's names because you feel like it, or you mispronounce people's names because you can't be able to learn their names, you're contributing towards these name-based biases that you know, limit opportunity for people from certain groups, you know? Um, and so you, we need to get our head out of the sand and be open and aware to learning new things in order to gain new habits, new inclusive habits, which will enable us to be more sensitive and kinder to others. But in order to do that, you need to be comfortable with the fact that, or become comfortable with the fact that you don't know everything there is to know. I, I think in the first, in the intro, I say, I don't have all the answers. I'm also a work in progress. These are just tips that I have. This is advice that I have based on my lived experience and based on the work that I've done. But, you know, I don't have it all. No one has all the answers. We need to keep trying to, we need to be in the pursuit of progress over perfection, ultimately. One of the things that you start talking about at the beginning of the book is that perhaps the best way to be kinder to others is to start being kinder to ourselves and you talk about the value and, and the importance of actually being selfish at times and, and looking after number one on the basis that you can't look after others properly unless you are you know fully looking after yourself you have an amazing quote which again you know you've, you've turned a lot of things that I hold near and dear on their heads in a, in a wonderful way, because we're very familiar with Michelle Obama's comment about when they go low, we go high. You have a different take on this, which I just want to read it. It's on page 59. When they go low, put yourself first and get the keys to the basement, which is just a wonderful description. It's all about you have to look after yourself. Otherwise, you're in no fit position to look after other people, are you? No, you're not. And I love Michelle, by the way. Um, <laughs> I don't think I referenced her by name in the book, but I, you know, I think most people would get where that reference is coming from. Um, I love Michelle Obama, amazing woman. And actually that speech, you know, where she says, when they go low, we go high. Uh, it's quite an inspirational one. I believe she's talking about her children and the advice that she gives her kids about not listening to what they see on the TV and in the media, about what people are saying about, you know, their, their father, Barack Obama, um, and about people like them who are, you know, black people. And basically just being like, you know, don't stoop to their level, keep your, like, your head up and do the right thing. And, and I think that's a great, that's great advice. And, I, and in fact, you know, I, I, I do believe that it's really important to keep your face to the sun and, and so we focus your energy on those people who love you and people who care about you and people who have your best interests at heart and to not compromise your values because somebody is like goading you to compromise them. However, however, I think what Michelle maybe would also agree with me on um, is that self-preservation is also key. And part of going high when they go low is self-preservation in the sense that when you let your, allow yourself to be kind of, you know, roll around the dogs, quote unquote, you get fleas, you know? If you allow yourself to, to compromise everything you hold dear and everything you, all the values you have to go toe to toe with people who potentially don't have the same values you have and are trying to drag you down, you know, that can also, that can be problematic, right? But at the same time, if you are just constantly being like, I need to rise above, I need to rise above, I need to rise above, what you're potentially doing is just not protecting yourself and you're allowing yourself to be exposed. And that, and that is also not a good thing, especially if you are somebody who is 
marginalized individual, if you are a black person, if you are someone who's part of the LGBTQA plus community, X, Y, Z, you are constantly under attack, right? And so part of being able to go high is that you need to protect yourself. You need to have strong boundaries. You need to be willing to kind of be abrasive sometimes in order to protect yourself, in order to protect your community, in order to really, you know, stick around. If you, I'm definitely not somebody who advocates for marginalized individuals to, you know, leave themselves exposed and and not and not clap back, quote unquote, because they're worried about how they're going to be perceived. You know, there's there's many stereotypes, which means that um, you know, black people especially feel like they can't always say how they feel because they don't want to be perceived as like the angry black man, the angry black woman. And, you know, they don't want to be perceived as, you know, aggressive. And so, you know, keep your mouth shut and, and, and be respectful and, and be pleasing to others. And, and that's the best, how you're going to get by. And, and ultimately what I say to that is screw that, screw that because people who have those stereotypes, people who, who have those biases are always going to have those biases. They're always going to. And the thing is that if you have something you want to say in order to, you know, to stick up for yourself and advocate for what you believe in, you have the right to do it and you should do it and you should say it. And I think like I put that in the book because I just I just don't like the idea that people think that part of going high, quote unquote, um, and being the moral kind person means that you can't say, express yourself authentically and kind of say how you feel. We all have a right to, to use our voice to protect ourselves and also advocate for what is right. Chapter three. Yeah, but at least. Empathy fuels connection. Sympathy drives disconnection. A quote from Dr. Brené Brown's TED Talk on the power of vulnerability. In her talk, she asks you to imagine someone stuck in the bottom of a pit. Sympathy would be looking into the hole and saying, damn, that looks bad, sucks to be you, huh? Whereas empathy would be you climbing down into the pit with them and saying, I know what it's like down here and you're not alone. In one of the most profound chapters of the book, chapter 12, Benji talks about the subtle but vast difference and how sympathy can actually be quite destructive. An example I give in the book about how that ha- that can happen, how we can actually provide sympathy when we're trying, when we should provide empathy, is when people always try and find a silver lining in a bad situation. So, oh, um, I'm so sorry that I'm late. Uh, all the trains were cancelled and I had to walk. Oh, at least you got your steps in. Uh, or, oh, gosh, I went on holiday and I lost my bags. Had to buy new clothes. Well, at least you got a new wardrobe. And it's like, that comes, that's, that comes from an authentic intention to, you know, try and make someone feel better about a bad situation and also to kind of show someone that you are kind of listening to what they're saying and, you know, you are expressing care to them, quote unquote, for what they've gone through. But really what you're actually doing is you're dismissing their experience, right? Because what they brought you with wasn't pleasant. They didn't mean to walk to work. They didn't mean to lose all their clothes and get a new wardrobe. They haven't said it to you in an excited way. They said it to you in an, oh man, like this really sucks way. And actually what you really, what the best thing to do, the kind of response to that is to be like, oh man, that's awful. Like, I'm sorry. 
I'm sorry that that, that, that happened maybe even further to be like oh like it's anything I can do like to help or you may even be like oh yeah you know what like yeah I I totally I see you like and I I'm here for you but the reason why we don't jump to that response is because it, it requires vulnerability it requires us to really again expose ourselves and I think that's something which we, we kind of can struggle to do because ultimately to empathize with somebody you kind of need to relate it to your own experience in a way you, you need to kind of get in that hole quote unquote with them and to be like you know I I know how you feel because or I have an idea of how you feel because I felt a similar way before in the past and I think we kind of opt for the easier option which is to make light of it or to find a silver lining or to be dismissive because we don't necessarily want to be we don't want to be vulnerable it's not comfortable to be vulnerable but it's often necessary if we want to be, be kinder and um, to other people and if we want to build authentic relationships with the people around us you know that are are based on kind of mutual understanding as opposed to just like superficial niceties and so I, I think it's that's really something really important to to try and do but it, it requires practice compassion and listening is an art and if you think about all of the people who you you love in your life or, and to be more specific, the people who you like to have conversations with or you like to talk about the real stuff with, you know, over a cup of tea and the things you're going through, and you think about why that is, it's probably because they're great at listening compassionately. It's probably because they're great at demonstrating empathy. It's probably because you know that if you sit down and have a chat with them, you're going to feel truly seen and they're not going to hold anything back. And they're going to be fully present. And that's actually why you like to talk to them. But that takes a skill, that's an art form. And it's something we can all learn, but it it takes effort and it takes work. And and that's why I think it should be mandatory reading for directors, because Mm -hmm. actors are deeply vulnerable human beings. That's why we love them. And acting is essentially an exercise in repeated failure until you get it right. So actors are vulnerable all of the time. And I think it's really, really important that we understand how powerful allowing yourself to be vulnerable can be, even though it may appear deeply distressing and cause huge amounts of anxiety. But if you do allow yourself to be vulnerable, I think the opportunities that you get in order to help yourself and to and to help others are, are huge because it's so easy to leap to the, well, as you say, hey, at least you got a new set of clothes, right? Whereas actually that is to completely disregard and ignore and often just to blank out. It's, it's, it's the same point as, as me not acknowledging your color mm-hmm. i haven't acknowledged the terrible day that you've had because i've just been very very glib i have essentially in one moment dismissed your entire reality and i thought i was doing a nice thing whereas if i would just shut up and thought about it i could have helped you a lot more right mm. yeah 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 definitely i think it is because we all have this idea in our heads of well, we want to have this idea of ourselves as being perfect people, as being flawless human beings, as being people who um, not only don't, won't get anything wrong, right, or have no bad intentions, but also people who always will always try to do the right thing. And that if anyone else has a negative reaction, something we've done, it, it's probably more on them than it is on us. A lot of us don't want to be kind of self-critical, 
And the thing is, that's very, very necessary. It's very, very important if we're looking to be to be kinder to others and to reduce the harm that we have on others. I was having a conversation actually the other day where essentially, long story short, I was explaining how something that we often do or some people are, you know, do sometimes is indirectly transphobic. And the other person was like to me, oh, but, um, you know, it's kind of uncomfortable that you're saying that because people, you you admit yourself that the people who are doing it probably don't realise they're being transphobic. And what you're essentially doing is labelling them as transphobes. And that just feels really uncomfortable to me. This is what they were saying, because no one wants to be called a transphobe. They're not intentionally being transphobic, but essentially you're labelling them as like a bad person. And I was like, but no one in this world exists in a way that doesn't cause harm to others none of us like none none of us like that's unrealistic it's completely unrealistic to think that none of like we are all people who don't who have no harm on others and there's no way that we any of us are transphobic racist sexist you know I mean, misogynist all these things actually it's about reducing the harm not eradicating it it's actually virtually impossible to eradicate it and so when i say that somebody in this context is being indirectly transphobic that is to urge people to consider the impact of their actions, right? I'm not, I'm not making a judgment on their intentions. I'm not trying to say that they are bad people. I'm trying to say that actually we, are, we can all act in a way that can harm somebody else. We all do act in ways that, harms, that harm others. And it's better that we actually face up to that and we acknowledge that so we can try and, you know, take steps to minimise the harm that we have on other people um, and act in a kind of way. But in order to do that, we need to be self-critical. We need to kind of smash and destroy this idea that it's possible to be a perfect human being. It's not. Yeah, absolutely. And and this came up recently, Benji, and I I sort of talked about do you understand what it's like being on the receiving end of you? And and if you if you don't understand that, then you can be an unintentionally very destructive human being. And you're right. Reading your book sort of I found every time that I thought, "Oh god, I've done that." That's I I found it was almost as it was, it was sort of you telling me, hey, it's okay. You know, mm. we, we all screw this up. This book is, is an opportunity to learn, you know, from that. And I, I felt good about my self-awareness or lack thereof, you know, until you'd pointed it out. And I, and I found that actually it was a much more positive experience than, you know, actually somebody saying, oh, you really upset me then, because that would have been deeply distressing to me. Whereas what, what you're saying right from the get go, as you say in your introduction, you know, look, hey, I'm not I, I don't have all the answers. Right. This is this is not me saying I'm a perfect human being. If you all just act like me, everything will be fine. So I actually found it a really, really positive learning experience. Mm. Oh, I'm so glad to hear that because that is that's the intention. That's really it. And and everything that I do as a you know I'm an inclusion consultant for organisations, uh, and I create content on TikTok as well about how we can be kind to ourselves and others. And in everything that I do, it's really about trying to convey a message that I am not judging you, right? I am a lot of what I talk about. I'm talking about it with confidence because it's stuff that I've overcome myself or stuff that I'm dealing with myself. You know, I, for example, have made apologies that I've been insincere. I have learned from experience why like sincere apologies are important. I've learned that myself. I've 
listen to somebody without demonstrating compassion and empathy. And I've seen the impact I fall out of that. And I've learned from that experience why it's important to listen compassionately to others, right? And so I, I really feel that it's really important to me that people don't feel like I am trying to judge them. And that also people don't feel like, you know, I am somebody who, you know, is flawless and I get everything right because I don't, you know, all of us are on a journey. All of us are on a learning journey through life, right? The world is changing um, constantly. The people within it are constantly changing as well. So you're never gonna know everything there is to know about everything and you're never gonna get everything right. But it's really about trying your best to do better, be better. And when you do make mistakes, you apologize, you make amends if you can, and you just do better next time. It's really about getting up every day and just trying your best. And when you put it in that way, it's quite simple and it's quite reassuring, you know? I love reading the acknowledgement sections of Mm. books. And when I got to yours, there is you you could have the tendency to to say oh the book is done the learning is over i'm not going to get anything more out of this but i'm always interested into how many people have you know it takes a village right to write a book it's not just one person but you sign off this book beautifully by thanking your 17 year old self which i've never seen in an acknowledgement section before and i just thought that was just so wonderfully beautiful and authentic and and it meant so much and and again it goes back to this notion of of not necessarily being selfish but for focusing on ourselves i wonder if you've reflected about your 17 year old self in writing this book and and i know this is an impossible question to answer but what do you think your 17 year old self would would think if he knew what was going to happen to him so we'll start with the the light we'll go go from light to dark so (laughs) um yeah I think he would probably he'd be surprised he'd probably think that he'd be surprised that I was renting still Um, (laughs) (laughs) because I would have thought by 27 I'd have my own house I'd have a family and cost of living crisis he doesn't know about that yet he doesn't know about that he also just has unrealistic expectations about you know how things go in your 20s (laughs) especially in the world we live in now um and yeah so he'd probably be he'd probably think I was he'd be surprised at the life that I was living in terms of in a literal sense but I think other than that I think he would be so so proud and actually just like really surprised about the extent to which I've been able to create a life where I I'm authentically myself, or at least mostly authentically myself. Like I'd say 95% of the time, I am able to just express myself honestly and to make decisions that benefit my, my well-being and, and I'm able to live by the values that I hold. And these are all things that I didn't think I'd be able to do at 17. So 17 was when I first like properly came out to myself as a queer person. And that was a pivotal moment because I had faced up to the fact that, you know, I wasn't straight. And so I wasn't going to have that, you know, the wife and the kids, you know, thing. Uh, And I come from a very religious uh, background and and a culture that also doesn't, isn't very kind to um, queer people. And so I kind of also knew that acknowledging this about myself was going to separate me potentially from my family and my culture and life was going to be very hard. And at 17, because for many reasons, you know, I didn't, for example, have many role models who um, were living a life that 
I was potentially going to have to live. I didn't, there weren't that many success stories in the media about, um, so you were starting to see at that point, it was like 10 years ago. So we were starting to see queer people in, in TV shows and, and stuff like that, but not necessarily like um, queer people of color. I remember at like 17 thinking, oh gosh, I mean, people, white people are gay, black people aren't gay. Like who's, who's black and gay? Like what's that? Like that's, that's a, who, how can I live life as a black gay person? What does that look like? And looking around me, my, my environment was telling me, you know, my church, I went to church and that was telling me that, you know, I was going to hell and the environment around me was just telling me that, you know, people like me suffer and they struggle. And I got to a point where I came out to myself and I was like, this is who I am, but it's incompatible with the world that I live in. And so therefore I don't, to put it frankly, I didn't see myself living very long, which is a huge thing to, uh, to deal with at 17 <laughs> it's a huge thing to do at 17 I basically didn't see a future for myself at all and so I don't know how I fought through that at 17 I don't know how I pushed through it I'm amazed at myself that I managed to to kind of wade through that fog knowing not knowing what was on the other side of it and just being like okay I'm just gonna take it a day at a time a month at a time and just I'm just gonna see how it pans out and so the fact that I've managed to navigate to this point now where I am so loud and proud about who I am and what I stand for and to the extent that I talk about it online and there's a book that represents what I stand for and who I am and I talk about my identity very proudly I'm just really just amazed that I've managed to get to this point and I just I'm thankful so this is why I wrote that a bit in the book because I'm thankful to that 17 year old boy for not giving up even though there wasn't really any incentive other than I guess the desire to keep living there wasn't really an incentive Uh, I I had no idea whether I had no hope right but I kept going anyway well I'm delighted that the 17 year old boy didn't give up um he has had a remarkable life and will clearly have a huge future hope this helps how to be kinder to yourself and others is a manifesto to how to do just that it's been an absolute pleasure Benji Kusi thank you Oh, thank you so, so much for your time, Mark. Honestly, it's been such an awesome conversation and thank you for having me on your podcast. Conclusion, a massive thank you then to Benji Kusi for today's episode. And to recap, what have we learnt? Don't check out when the going gets tough. Many of the conversations that are going on in the world right now are not easy discussions to have, but they are essential. Don't ignore issues of gender, race and identity in your writing in the hopes of escaping hardship. Instead, ask for help to get it right. We like to see ourselves as striving for perfection and it's hard to see ourselves as having a negative impact on other people. Keep this in the back of your mind when creating your characters. If you can identify who that character would want to be in a perfect world, that can serve as a roadmap to craft their motives and actions in an imperfect one. And finally, as writers, we're often writing from a place of passion. So when you're trying to communicate an important message to make people just a little less ignorant about something, make sure you do it with kindness, not with judgment. We're all ignorant and we're all learning and it takes time. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Haywood. You can get in touch directly at info at behindthespine.co.uk. We'd love to hear from you. We're also on Twitter and Facebook as at Behind the Spine and Instagram as at Behind the Spine Podcast. Check out the show notes for additional information and a full transcript of this episode. 
You can also sign up to our email newsletter for updates about our exclusive live and in-person residency at the Groucho Club in London titled Inside Stories. These events are not recorded and not repeated and are designed to put you, the audience, both behind the spine and in the room. If you'd like to go on the guest list, please drop us a line. Goodbye for now, stay safe and keep writing. This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk. 